Well, we're going to be in John 18 this morning, so you could turn there in your Bible, but I wanted to take just a moment and just look at you, because I missed you last week. I was at an Air Force uh, function called Yellow Ribbon, which is for people who have served in Iraq or Afghanistan, and then they're reunited with their families. So there were about 485 service people and their families together last week, and so I got to be one of the chaplains. I have enjoyed doing that, and uh, I'll be retiring uh, next year, so uh, I'm running out of time to get to serve our military in that capacity. I also want to say thank you for all of you who sent cards and, and kindnesses um, over my mom, who died uh, two weeks ago yesterday, and uh, she was 86 and ready to go and loved the Lord, and um, we will miss her, but uh, it was not a surprise, and so thank you for your many kindnesses. Also, Andrea Padilla uh, died yesterday, and uh, she and her husband usually sat right down here, a little restaurant couple. He was the chef, and she was the waitress, and just been struggling with cancer. We have a couple of clips on our website uh, that she, she did, just uh, her witness for the Lord, and today she's at peace and out of pain, so we praise God for that. And so, I uh, hope you took good care of Ron Klein last week. Did you enjoy him? Oh, man. He was the dean of students at Azusa Terrific when I first visited there, and I said, I, I better go to this school. I really liked that guy, and he has just served the Lord, and um, so he's trying to tempt me to go to Nepal to see the, the tribes that we have adopted, and we're getting the Bible translated into their languages, so he says, you've got to go with me, so I don't know if we can do that, but anyway, well, he's, uh, he's wanting some people to go with him uh, in June to see about that work, so... Uh, we're going to be in John 18. We've been, this, been in this series uh, in John. We're kind of moving it to a new title today as we go through the last chapters of John called Rise, the cross, the grave, the throne. This will take us uh, through Easter and a couple weeks beyond. And uh, we have been uh, looking, listening to all the things that Jesus wanted to teach his disciples before they left um, he left the earth and things that he really wanted to be sure to tell them and uh, all the things that he was telling them. Well, now he's going to show them what he stands for and what he lived for, what he died for, and how he conquered death. And so the rest of the book of John is really about his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, and then his coming back uh, from the dead and empowering the disciples to go and to be the church around the world. It's really answering. John didn't say everything in his gospel. He already had Matthew, Mark, and Luke to read when he was, um, when he was writing his gospel, he had one particular focus. And if you look in John chapter 20, the last couple of verses, it says, Jesus did a lot of things that aren't written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And he wants us to choose his name as our Savior, as the, the King of kings and Lord of lords, to ask him to be uh, the, the Lord in our lives and to give us forgiveness and purpose now and a place in heaven. So, uh, Jesus is going into this period where he's going to suffer and die for you and for me and for the sin of the whole world. And in these next few chapters, we see man at his very worst and God at his very best. And only God can do that. So John 18 starts with Jesus. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. They've had the, um, the Passover meal in John 13, where G and Jesus told them, love one another. And then in 14, he said, I go to prepare a place for you. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in 15, he said, I'm the true vine. Stay connected and be fruitful. And in John 16, he said, I've overcome the world, and they hated me. They will hate you too. And then in John 17, Jesus prays for himself and for the disciples and for the church present and future. 
Well, in here in chapter 18, they cross the, the brook in the Kidron Valley and they enter the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, at a feast like the Feast of Passover, uh, Jews who were expected to be at the three feasts in Jerusalem, particularly the Feast of the Passover, would show up and the city of Jerusalem would swell by about 10 times its size. It would have been crawling with people, everybody trying to find a place to stay or a place to pitch a tent or a sleeping bag. In fact, there's several references in the Bible to Jesus having a day of teaching in Jerusalem and then leaving uh, the city of Jerusalem to go find a place to sleep um, out under the stars on the Mount of Olives. And so uh, this little Garden of Gethsemane is between the city of Jerusalem, down in the Kidron Valley, and then up the, the garden, uh, garden is down here in the bottom of the valley, and uh, then the uh, Mount of Olives is up on the other side. And so there would have been all kinds of people, but somehow Jesus had access to this private garden, uh, would have been private property. It was kind of a quiet place that's close to the city where they could rest and pray and prepare. And Gethsemane literally means oil press. It's a place where the olives were pressed until the olive oil came out. It's where Jesus was pressed until his love for you and me came out. So the Kidron Valley is also right there. This temple is on that side of the city of Jerusalem. And that's where they would slaughter the lambs that people would bring with them as a sacrifice for their sin. Or they could buy one at inflated prices in the temple. And we don't know how many were, uh, lambs were uh, killed as, uh, as offerings the year that Jesus was put to death. But there is a record outside of the Bible that 10 years after that, on one Passover, there were 256,000 lambs that were slaughtered. 256,000. And so the blood from all of those lambs would have been running down towards this valley. It wasn't that far from it. And uh, the disciples certainly would have been able to smell the, the animals and the blood on their way to the garden. Jesus had several meetings that night. Some of them were illegal, but all of them were divine appointments. And it, they weren't illegal because of Jesus. It's because of trials were not supposed to happen at night, and uh, they were forced upon him. And most of these people who came to arrest Jesus or to try Jesus, they thought they were in charge, and they were not aware and didn't prepare in advance particularly for the most important moment of their lives, when they would see Jesus face to face. And it would determine their eternal destiny. See, the most important question, in the, I believe, in the world is, what will you do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? Some people just had one opportunity of meeting Jesus in their whole life just one time. And some of them came thinking they could control him or contain him. What will you do with Jesus? Others spent longer periods of time, maybe even years, listening to his teaching, hoping to get to see a miracle with their own eyes, maybe hoping to have a miracle happen to them. What will you do with Jesus? Are you praying for a miracle today? Now, we have the privilege of reading the accounts of the life of Jesus a couple of thousand years after the fact. We believe that the Bible is God's inspired word. It's our guide for faith and practice. It directs our lives and our decisions and how we organize ourselves as a church because we want to be, take God's word seriously and lift it up as, as God's word. It's not just another good book. And in this book, all the facts have been gathered and assembled and studied and uh, debated and discussed and dissected, and, and Jesus still still shines through after 2,000 years. What will you do with Jesus? On the night he was betrayed and arrested and tortured and then denied and then hit in the face and taunted, he had you on his mind. He was there to pay with his life so that you wouldn't have to pay 
for your sin with yours. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't just bad luck that he was in the garden. Jesus went to the garden to pray and to wait for this divine appointment. In fact, there was a series of divine appointments. The first one was with Judas. Verse 2, it says, Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Judas Iscariot is remembered for one thing. He betrayed Jesus. He sold him for 30 pieces of silver. He went on to take his own life that night and committed suicide. And most situations are remembered by how they end. So end well. When you come to the time of ending something, end it well, because it's how things will be remembered. And Judas here had been one of the 12 disciples, personally chosen by Jesus. He had traveled with Jesus for three years. He had heard every sermon. He had seen every miracle. He had eaten every free lunch that Jesus provided. He was loved by Jesus. He was trusted by the other disciples. He was the treasurer for the entire ministry of Jesus, which is saying something because he was chosen over Matthew, who had worked for the IRS. He served alongside Jesus and all the other disciples diligently for three years, but he never gave his heart to Jesus. Judas worked for God, but he never worshiped God. He worked for God, but he never worshiped God. Do you know there's a warning there for us? You can do all, go through all the motions, you can do all the right things, but if you never give your heart to Jesus, if you never come to the place of saying, Jesus, I love you, I need you, I, please forgive my sin, please come into my life, then you've missed the greatest opportunity ever to come your way. What will you do with Ju Jesus? Because I think Judas was motivated, yes, by the money, but more than that. It wasn't just about the money. It was also about the power. He was sure that Jesus was the Messiah. And he had expected Jesus to flex his Messiah muscles and take charge. And he had expected that when that happened, he would be in a position of power and of influence. After all, he was the treasurer. And Jesus seemed reticent that week in Jerusalem to push himself forward. And Judas came up with a plan to give Jesus a push and make some extra cash. It's kind of a win-win, he thought. Except it wasn't God's plan. So... Judas set aside God's plan and pushed his own agenda, which is never a good idea. Jesus knew from the very beginning that Judas Iscariot was going to betray him. In fact, he had told the disciples right after he fed 5,000 with a little boy's lunch, he said, did I not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is a devil. Judas Iscariot also fulfilled the prophecy of Psalm 41, verse 9, which was written by David a thousand years before Jesus was born. And it says, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. And Jesus quoted this very scripture at the Last Supper when he told them that one of them would betray him. Then after that, he gave Judas some bread. And John tells us that at that point, Satan entered Judas' heart. And he went out to arrange the final details of Jesus' arrest. The fact that God knew all of this in advance, that all of it was predicted in Scripture long before it happened, that doesn't excuse Judas or absolve him from the punishment that he would suffer. Judas made his own choices. He was the source of his own condemnation. And yet the choices fit perfectly with the sovereign plan of God in this world. God, you see, controls not just the good things in this life, not just the people who submit their heart to him, but he even uses the evil that people do to accomplish his own ends because he's God. 
Judas was fully responsible for his own actions. And Jesus said, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man, which that woe is a curse. It's the opposite of a blessing. Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had never been born. Judas Iscariot arrives in the garden with a band of soldiers. As they had previously agreed, Judas betrays the Savior with a kiss. That way the soldiers would know who to capture and to arrest. And Matthew and Luke both record this moment and they give a little, shed a little light on it. In Matthew 26 it says, he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and they laid hands on Jesus and seized him. In Luke 22, we're told, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the 12, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? I mean, this was Judas' moment of truth. All the disciples had thought he was a loyal disciple, but now the, everything, he's out in the open. The trap has sprung. All the disciples could see he's the one leading that band of soldiers here. He's more interested in the money and the power than in being right with God. He's more interested in the money and the power than in following Jesus' lead or in forgiveness or in living forever in God's presence. Even in this moment, he could have taken Jesus' offer of friendship and asked for forgiveness, said, oh, Jesus, I failed you. I had my own plan, and it's obviously not going to work, and I am so, so sorry. Please forgive me. But he never did that. Judas wasn't in love with Jesus, so he missed his moment. See, after committing his atrocious act, after not seeing 10,000 angels swoop in to intervene and overthrow the Romans, after seeing Jesus abused and accused and condemned to die, Judas was seized with remorse. Not repentance, with remorse. And he returned the 30 silver coins to the temple and the chief priests and the elders basically scoffed at him and he went out and he took his own life. He hung himself. See, remorse does not equal repentance. Remorse is this gnawing distress arising from a sense of guilt for past wrongs. And rather than seeking amends or saying, please forgive me or seeking forgiveness, Judas went out and took action in his own hands and took his own life. Where did Judas end up? His own ambitions killed him. When he saw that he'd caused Jesus to suffer and die, Judas took his own life, and Jesus said it would be better if he had never been born. So in his end in this life is tragic, and it sounds like it got even worse after that. Judas tried to sell the Savior, but Jesus was not for sale. And you can't buy his love and forgiveness either. You can only receive it as a gift. Judas betrayed Jesus, and suddenly now, because of Judas, Jesus finds himself standing before the Roman army. It says, verse 3, Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. 
The Garden of Gethsemane is in the shadow of the temple. The temple sits up on the hill, pretty impressive, just behind the wall, towering over the garden and over the valley. And often when these large feasts is when there would be trouble in Jerusalem, and most often it's centered in the temple area, in the temple courtyard, or what's called the Temple Mount. And so King Herod, years before this, had seen this as a problem. So he had built, or next to the temple, he had built the Antonia Fortress right next to it. In fact, he had built it taller than the temple, which really irritated the Jews because they wanted the temple, the glory to God, to be the number one thing. And suddenly this building next to it is taller, but it was used to keep peace on the temple mount. Whose life got saved by the soldiers racing out of the Antonia Fortress? Anybody know? It's in the Bible. Paul. Paul was there on the Temple Mount uh, and uh, making a pitch, and the people wanted to riot. And it was because the soldiers came racing out of the Antonia Fortress that his life was saved at that moment. And so uh, they, uh, they would have, the Romans during feast times would send extra uh, legions to Jerusalem uh, to control the city and to keep the peace and to do crowd control. So I'm sure the fortress was full of soldiers that night that Jesus was arrested. And Judas arrives in the garden with a band of soldiers, which the word band indicates about 600 men with torches and weapons looking for Jesus. Most of these are soldiers who've come in from out of town. They've never seen Jesus. They've probably never heard him. They don't know what he looks like. But it wouldn't be a fair contest, would it? 600 trained men for war with torches and weapons versus 12 civilians, and between them they had two swords. They brought torches to find the light of the world. They brought swords to capture the Prince of Peace. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they asked, answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me, I have lost, not one. This huge army comes to arrest Jesus, and Jesus overpowers them. You know how? He declares his name, I am he. And he commands them, and we're going to see in a moment, he protects them. They came to arrest Jesus, and he tells them what to do, and they obey him. You know why? Because he really is the Lord. Jesus is Lord Verse 10, then Simon Peter, do you remember back at the Passover meal, everybody, Jesus saying, one of you is going to betray me. And Peter said, no, I won't, Lord. I will go with you to the death. And Jesus said, really, Peter? Because before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And that's the part we focus on and remember. Peter had said, I will go with you to the death. And here, he, here you've got 12 men now surrounded by an army of 600, all of whom are armed. And it says, Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. So he whips out his sword and he takes a hack at the first guy standing in front of him. Everything stops. John tells us the servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Peter's actions, which are almost comical in this moment, in light of the situation, 12 verses 600, Jesus says, stop, Peter. Peter's still doing what he promised. He's fulfilling his word that he was going to be true to Jesus. He's attacking the entire army, and Jesus protects them. And instead, Jesus heals the enemy. Well, you know, it's kind of a good question. Have you ever lopped off somebody's ear trying to do something good for the Lord? 
Okay, maybe not their ear, but you've taken a hack at something and it didn't go well, wasn't understood, didn't work out the way you had. Sometimes we get in our own way. And the band of soldiers, they've arrived under orders to arrest Jesus. And Jesus commands them because he's the Lord. He's arrested and yet he shows us who he really is in this situation. He's king of kings and lord of lords. What happened to all these Roman soldiers? They got to see Jesus personally. Well, they did their duty and they moved on. And there is no record of any of them taking time to examine the claims of Christ or the fairness of his arrest. Now, obviously, Malchus certainly would remember that night. I mean, his life had been threatened. He probably would have died from his injuries if Jesus hadn't personally intervened. Did that cause Malchus to consider the claims of Christ? See, Malchus was there as the high priest's representative. Maybe he was even family to the high priest. We have no record of it. Here a miracle is done in his own life, and it doesn't change a thing. Because miracles are often forgotten or they're discounted as trickery or magic or something, and they do not change a person's heart when their mind is already made up. It's kind of sad, really, that even the evidence is ignored to stick with their prejudice. Well, next, Jesus is taken before the religious courts. It says, verse 12, so the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. They first led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. When the high priesthood was set up, with Aaron being the first one, the idea was that a person would be high priest for uh, till death, and then another high priest, of probably his son, would be chosen, and it would be passed like the kingship was from father to son, father to son. But when King Herod came along, who he was Idumean, he was from Esau's tribe, he was not directly Jewish, um, but he was threatened by the high priest because it was such a position of power. So he deposed the uh, high priest and made them choose somebody else. And so they had gotten into this where you would change high priests. So Annas was high priest from 6 to 16 AD, which means that he would have been the high priest when Jesus was there as a boy. Do you remember the story in Luke 2 where Jesus comes with his parents to the temple? His parents go home. It's probably the year of Jesus' bar mitzvah, and he stays in the temple, and he's engaging them in conversation and talking about the Word of God, and they're all astonished at all that he knows. And finally, his parents, after three days looking for him, find him in the temple. If he was astonishing all of the scholars, it would have been brought to the attention of the high priest. Hey, there's a boy here. He's 13 years old. He's lost. We just had his bar mitzvah. His parents are gone, and he really, really knows the Bible. He really knows God's Word. So I, we don't, there's no record of it, but I, I can't help but wondering. It's one of the questions we can ask when we get to heaven. Did Jesus ever meet Annas when he was a boy, and Annas was the high priest? 20 years later now, one of his sons is high priest, but Annas is the one who's put this strong political machine together. He's the one responsible for the money changers working right in the temple to gouge people so they could feed their coffers, and he didn't like Jesus. You know why? Because Jesus had attacked their income stream. He had stolen their popularity with the people. He had uh, 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 criticized them publicly. He had threatened their position in the eyes of Rome and in the eyes of Pontius Pilate. And Annas is the power behind the throne, behind the scenes. Well, then we head into six trials of Jesus, three that were Jewish, three that 
were Roman. They're not all recorded in John, but what you can see if you study them and study their laws at the time is that the Jewish leaders were willing to break their own law after law after law just so they could get what they wanted, the death of Jesus. The trial of Jesus was not a fair trial. It was a sham. They have all these rules that they broke. The number of witnesses was not correct. The witnesses didn't agree with each other. The nature of the accusation changed. First, he was accused of, of blasphemy because he claimed to be God. When they got in front of Pilate, they accused him of, of claiming to be king. He had been arrested for a capital crime, which you could not be arrested at night, but Jesus was arrested in the middle of the night. If you were arrested for a capital crime, no one who cooperated in their arrest could be any way associated with the accused, but Judas was used as a tool. No Jewish trial was allowed to be held at night, but all six of these were held at night. A court wasn't supposed to immediately pass judgment on a capital crime, but they hurried to get it done that night to get it done before Passover Witnesses had to be called before a prisoner was questioned, and a prisoner couldn't be asked any questions which would incriminate them of a capital crime. But as soon as Jesus was arrested, they started right in. Verse says, verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret why do you ask me? Ask those who've heard what I say me, what I said to them. They know what I said. Jesus is saying, play by your own rules. And when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? And Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Jesus didn't respond in anger, but he also didn't back down. And when you look at the trials, Jesus is looking more and more innocent, and those who are accusing him are looking more and more guilty. This trial proved the innocence of the accused and the guilt of the accusers. You're right, it wasn't a fair trial. But notice, God used an unfair trial and an unfair execution to give us forgiveness and righteousness because he loves you that much. It wasn't fair, you're right. But when it seems that the books aren't balanced in this world, when it seems like this world isn't fair, it's important to remember that this is not where the books are going to be balanced, that God will balance them in heaven where God will make everything right and fair and just. And so God takes these unrighteous, unholy things that are done and he uses them to get Jesus right to where he wanted him to be on the cross of Calvary suffering and dying for you and for me. And the louder they shout and the more charges they bring, the more he looks innocent. Jesus was innocent, but they wanted him out of the way. And what they didn't realize is that the Jewish leaders and Satan were working together and God was working together with them to fulfill God's plan of salvation to provide Jesus as the perfect sacrificial lamb for the sin of the world. You know, we can look at those religious leaders and say, thank God I'm not like them. But a better prayer would be to pray, Lord, to keep me from becoming like them because they were so stuck on doing it their own way. They were fighting for their status quo, for their power, for their position, for their comfort. And we've all struggled with those things. So instead of becoming like them, to pray, God, keep us focused on you and following your will and your way. Here during the Passover feast, Peter had loudly proclaimed, I am all in, Jesus, to death do us part. And Jesus said, yeah, before the rooster crows, you will deny me. 
So I think it would have been smart of Peter to put himself on a timeout right after dinner. He should have walked a straight line home, gotten in bed, put his pillow over his head, and just stayed there. But he didn't do that. In the garden, Peter defended Jesus before soldiers and leaders. He was willing single-handedly to take on all 600 of them. But in the courtyard, he denies Jesus before a servant girl and before slaves. What happened? What happened? Verse 15 says, Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple, which all the way through John, we're assuming that's the author, John, the youngest of the disciples who just never puts his own name in. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. Now, this is a shadow of a relationship that comes up several times and we don't really know enough about it. Was there a family connection between uh, John the fisherman's family and uh, the high priest's family? Did John know Malchus? Were they about the same age? Did they play together year after year as John's family had come to Jerusalem? We don't know any of that. But it did provide opportunity for John to get in to see the trial of Jesus firsthand. It says, verse 16, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. And the servant girl at the door said to Peter as she's letting him in, you're also not one of the man's disciples, are you? And he said, oh, no, no, I'm not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. What made the difference between a Peter who one moment will attack an army and the next is, is whimpering that he never knew Jesus? Peter experienced doubt and fear and pride. Doubt and fear and pride. He, he has doubt because he's taken the first move of raw courage, or was it raw stupidity? And he has doubt because his plan and God's plan aren't matching. And then he has fear because fear of the unknown. He's always walked with Jesus. Jesus just told him what to do or brought him correction when he needed it. And now Jesus is separated from him. And pride, which was probably the main problem, he had never faltered in his life. He, I mean, his greatest weakness was not being able to recognize his weaknesses. And he failed because of that. That's kind of a warning for you and for me. Because if you can read Peter's story and not find yourself in it, you've missed the point. Luke fills in a poignant scene just after Peter swore up and down that he didn't know Jesus. It says in Luke 22, after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he'd said to him before the rooster crows today, you'll deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Pride comes before a fall. Peter teaches us that lesson again. We're human and we need Jesus. And Jesus is perceptive. He, he's perceptive in our lives too. I mean, we too deal with doubt and fear and pride. And he looks at Peter without saying, Peter, I told you so. Or Peter, I tried to tell you, you wouldn't listen. And he still loves Peter even though Peter has hurt him deeply. And the difference between Judas and Peter is that Judas felt remorse and he took destructive actions into his own hands. And Peter felt a deep repentance. And he and Jesus both took actions, which we'll study later, to restore and to rebuild their relationship. Both Judas and Peter let Jesus down. But Peter took the right steps to get right with God. It's important to get right with God. There were two other meetings that night. We'll save those till next week, one with Pilate and one about Barabbas. But Jesus has been put on trial. 
And he's on trial in our world too and in our lives as well. See, some people work for Jesus, but they never worship him. Don't be one of those. Some live their lives doing their duty, but they never consider his claims. Some try to stand up for him and be strong, but they fail, and they need help, and they would have been better off just to listen to Jesus' warning and follow God's plan. And some put him up to unfair tests and have already decided he won't be their Savior. And others love him with all their heart and soul and mind and strength. What will you do with Jesus? Neutral, you cannot be. Because someday your heart will be asking, what will he do with me? Choose Jesus because he loves you and he's God. Shall we pray? Dear Jesus, thank you so much for being God and yet coming into this world, for loving us and understanding our sinful condition our tendency to do the wrong thing, to promote our own agenda, to go our own way, to have our own idea rather than just listening to your voice and following you. Thank you for being our Savior and our God. Thank you for coming and being willing to die on the cross for our sin. Even right now, if you never have, just open your heart and invite Jesus in because he loves you and he is God. Amen.